tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse number 12. Uh, we'll cover uh, the middle portion of this chapter and we'll leave uh, one more lesson in this chapter for next week. Um, we are going to be, I think, having a great time uh, talking about what the Bible says is the most important topic of them all. So uh, the title I'm sure gives it away, but if you probably, if you polled a church, if you polled an audience of church members and you said, hey, what's the most important subject matter in the Bible? You'd probably get a lot of different, several different responses and, and they may all kind of hover around the same thing or the same person um, but, but, or the same event in history, but they might not be specific or particular. What uh, we're going to learn tonight is the one that stands tall above the rest. And, you know, sometimes we can be pretty general, pretty broad in how we refer to things and study things, but the issue at hand is very specific, very particular, um, and the reason why it, it is so crucial to our faith, uh, we're going to learn the implications of this subject uh, across the board. From theological to practical, it impacts every aspect of the universe, it impacts the way we understand God, and it impacts the way we live out our lives. So, so it's so crucial uh, to how we understand our faith. I, I want to say this up front. You don't have to know any of the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight to be a good Christian, to serve God, and to live faithfully. Um, all this is, is things that you can learn as a Christian. You should learn as a Christian. The Bible says you should learn as a Christian. Um, if at any point in our conversation tonight you feel like it gets a little bit uh, too complicated, too, too, too foggy, um, uh, we'll try to make it as simple as we can. Uh, but but I, I, want, I want us to truly appreciate what Paul says and what the Bible says is the most important subject matter in all of Christianity, in all of our faith, and the way we read the Bible, uh, we should see this one particular issue kind of at the, at the center of the story. So we're going to jump right in and read verses 12 through 19, and we're going to hear Paul elevate a particular topic pretty clearly um, and repeatedly throughout this passage, and we're going to talk about why, what, what, why he's addressing it in this book, uh, and uh, then we're going to narrow in on why it's such a big deal and why I think you should take it as a pretty big deal. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, uh, whom he did not raise up. In fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile or useless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ have perished, as in they are lost and will never see them again. If in this life only we have hope, or we only have hope in Christ, we are among all men the most pitiable. So we hear Paul mention the resurrection or, the, or Christ being raised uh, 
over eight times, and in all these verses, we hear him reference it. Uh, we find out in this passage why Paul spent the verse 11 verses sort of uh, getting us all on the same, uh, the same place with a recap of the gospel. Because it turns out there are some people in Corinth who are denying one of the core tenets or really the core pillar of the Christian faith. And, and Paul is going to argue that this isn't just one of the pillars. It is the foundation for everything else to be built on. And again, that is the resurrection of Jesus and how that pre previews our own resurrection. Now, I don't think any of us here or anybody in a Protestant evangelical church, I don't think any of us here have any issues with the resurrection like the Corinthians seem to be having. Uh, I think all of us understand that Christ died and rose again, and we all believe that we will rise as well, whether raptured and glorified in an instant or laid to rest in our death, and of course our bodies will be raised up again. I don't think anybody here tonight argues with that, has a problem with that, or doesn't see that as a core part of the Christian faith. But I do think it's possible that we don't understand just how important, just how essential, and just how core the resurrection is to our faith. Because Paul seems to be anchoring the Christian faith in the resurrection reality of Jesus and the promise made to us. Now, Paul's argument in this passage may not seem necessary to us. I still think we're going to be able to untap some truths that maybe we've never considered before. And I really think that's going to be the reality tonight. We're going to open our minds up to a brand new category or to a whole other level of understanding by having this conversation tonight. And I think it'll help us understand the story that God has been writing since the beginning. And we'll have a better and more clear understanding and cohesive understanding of what the story is from Genesis to Revelation. Now, so before we get into all that, I want us to think about this question. Why did the Corinthians not believe in the resurrection? What was their deal? So, I mean, you read this passage and it really seems kind of strange. Why is Paul even having to address this? Maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you've wondered that before. He's not writing to unbelievers. You would imagine this would be a relevant conversation to have and questions to ask to unbelievers because, of course, unbelievers don't believe in, in, that Jesus died and rose again from, from, you know, for, for our salvation. But Paul's not writing to, to pagans. He's not writing to, to, to lost people. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who've put their faith in Jesus to save them, yet they are denying that he rose from the dead and they're denying that they themselves will raise up, be raised up from the dead. And again, you might think, well, that makes no sense. And, and I think it is hard for us to understand. But I want us to, under, I want us to try to get an idea of what they were dealing with. And I want us to understand that maybe we share some beliefs that they had. We haven't even realized it yet. So here's the deal. Uh, this has a lot to do with the pagan culture that the Corinthian church was previously immersed in. Uh, the Corinthians, there were some Jewish Christians, but there was a lot of Greek Christians, a lot of uh, converted pagans to Christianity. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of this that we might not understand what, how, where they were coming from, but we're going to see that some of these ideas are actually within the walls of Christianity. Uh, they just kind of got there a different way. So here's, here's where we're going to start from. The Greeks 
the pagans, had a very low appreciation and respect for physical creation. Now, I don't expect anybody here to have a lot of uh, background and uh, knowledge about the pagan culture and, and no reason to do that, but if you were to study uh, the, the Greek or a pantheon of religions, the Greek religions, the pagan religions of the Greeks and the Romans, and, and, and really parts of uh, really all the pagan religions. Uh, the pagans had a very low appreciation for this earth. Uh, they believed that we were pretty much trapped in a less than state. If, if you read mythology and the way the world was created and the way that the things came into existence, um, it, it's sort of like the gods were cursing people and trapping people under this materialistic world in this fleshly world, and that the the whole uh, time spent on this earth is waiting to be released from this material physical universe and that you're never going to be able to truly experience and enjoy life unless you're released from this physical world now the reason why i think this is relevant to us is because if we change the words around a little bit some christians pretty much have the same opinion about this life do you agree? Some Christians pretty much have the same idea that we are kind of held back by this life, that we're never going to truly be able to enjoy life and experience life, and, and we're really just waiting to be released from this world to really be able to enjoy what God has for us. And I understand that that is part of what it means to be a Christian, longing for eternity, but I think we misunderstand and we fail to truly appreciate what God is trying to do in this life and how this this life previews eternity a whole lot more than we realize. So the Greeks, they had a low appreciation. They didn't believe there was anything of value in this physical world, that it was all a burden, it was all full of baggage, it was all bondage, and they wanted to be released, and they envisioned a future where they were released from the body and in a spiritual you know, form they could truly enjoy life as it was meant to be. Now, uh, you, you see, the Greeks who became Christians didn't understand the big deal about the resurrection because they had no concept for and they saw no redeemable value in this world or their physical bodies. So the Greeks didn't understand why the Christians were making a big deal about Jesus raising up from the grave and that we ourselves are going to be raised up from the grave and that we ourselves are going to live in a glorified, restored earth. The Greeks said, okay, we believe, we, we like this idea of Jesus coming from God to save us, but we want to talk about being released from this world. We don't see any redeemable value in this world. We are waiting to die. We're waiting to get released. And we envision a future where none of this material fleshly things that we can touch and feel and taste and see. We envision a world where none of this is bothering us anymore. They did not see any redeemable value in this world or their own physical bodies. Now, they believed that Jesus came from God, but they did not believe, this is big, they did not believe that Jesus was actually a man. They believed he was a spiritual presence that appeared to be a man, that appeared to be a physical person, but was truly just a phantom, truly just a spirit that looked like he had some skin on. And this group, if you study early church history, this group of Christians, they believed in Jesus, but they just didn't have their, their, their cards all, all, all lined up. But this is called docetism. And the word docet in Greek means seems to seem so or to appear so. So they believed that Jesus was a phantom. They believed that Jesus was just a spirit that looked like he had some skin on. And they denied all the stuff about him literally having a resurrection body. They thought that was all just pretend, that was all fake. And really, they just didn't really 
understand what God was doing through the resurrection and what the story that God was telling as a whole. And you might say, well, do you really got to understand all that to be a Christian? Maybe not. But while we're here, and Paul seems to think that you should learn about it. So while we're here, we're going to learn about it. Uh, They didn't deny that Jesus redeemed creation. They refused to believe that Jesus entered creation as one of us. And this is really the biggest problem. Why would God ever condescend himself? Why would God lower himself, not just to the level of humanity, but to the substance of humanity? Why would God not just put our skin on, but become one of us? That would be such a humiliating thing for God to do. This flesh, this material, this physical world is inferior to everything that God is in his spirit. Why would he become one of us? They just didn't understand it. Why would God become a person? That's such an insulting thing for God to do. Now, maybe you've never given much thought about to this, but I think we'll be better Christians and we'll have a more biblical understanding of Christianity and the eternal future that we have if we spend a little time talking about this tonight. Now, this may seem a little bit more Bible uh, college class than a Bible study tonight, but, but, but I promise I'm going to keep it as elementary as I can, uh, and I promise that I think you can handle it because y'all love your Bible, y'all love learning about Jesus, learning about God's Word, and Paul seems to think that it's important for us to talk about. And here's why I think you should care about this. Lest we fail to understand and appreciate Jesus' incarnation and resurrection, lest we fail to understand and appreciate why God became one of us and why God remains one of us. Do you, do you think about this? Jesus is a physical, literal man on a throne in a spiritual heaven. That's a big deal. Now, we might not realize why it's a big deal, but that's a big, major deal. And it has implications that have changed the future course of history. Ultimately, where Paul is taking us, it's really an eschatological, which means future of creation, eternal conversation. It's really an eschatological heavy conversation because as we've learned in our eternity series, if you've been here for our Bible studies on Sunday nights, God's will is to complete his vision and creative purpose for the earth. Now, again, you might say, well, I don't really, do I need to know about this? Well, I think if you came tonight, you might as well try to figure out what it, what it, what it is. But God has a will. And at the top of God's will is to complete his vision and his purpose for this earth. God does not do anything without clear and serious intent. So think about this. There's only one earth. God didn't start create, didn't create all sorts of planets with all sorts of different species on them. God created one planet that could sustain life and that God made this earth. So that must mean it's a significant thing that God, a spiritual being who has always existed, that God ever at one point in his existence said, hey, you know what? I'm going to speak into existence a brand new reality, a brand new creation. I'm going to speak into existence a physical world that's completely different from me, If God decided to do that, it must be a big deal, don't you think? So think about this. Have you ever stopped and wondered why is God so committed to this earth? Why is God so committed to this physical reality? Think about this. God was 100% God before Genesis 1. Do we all agree that? 
God was 100% fully God before he ever spoke this world into existence. So we know he didn't need to do any of this, right? He didn't need to make this world. He didn't need to speak into existence the physical realm. So if he didn't need to, and if he was complete without any of this or any of us, it's quite clear that he must have wanted to. Make sense? He didn't need to. He wasn't incomplete without us, so he wanted to do this. And, and really, the starting point that we can wrap our mind around the, this, this, this thing about God is uh, these two things. God is triune, and God is love. These are two things that are going to help us understand why God did what he did. God is not three separate beings. He is one. He has three persons. He's revealed in three different forms, yet he is one being. He is one in his godness. We can't wrap our minds around this. We can't comprehend this, but let me just kind of explain it to you this way. No other living thing, no other element or entity in nature is so great and mighty that it needs to be expressed through more than one form. Right? There's just one of you, and there's only, the only version of you is the person that's here tonight. Right? That's not too deep for us, is it? There's one of you. You don't need multiple forms to be able to express yourself because we are, we're barely making the most out of this life as people. Right? Not to insult anybody, but we're barely hitting on all cylinders as people. God is so great that it takes three persons to truly reveal who he is. Isn't that incredible? We are barely getting there as one. God is fully revealed in three. He's one of a kind, isn't he? So God is triune. What does that tell us about God? He's in community. God's nature is to be cultivating and creating community, which is what led his creating the world that we live in, which leads us to God being love. God created us a universe that essentially prioritizes the creatures that he made in his image. God is triune, he's in community, so he created image, creatures in his image, and because he is a loving God, we often think about God's love as a reactionary thing. We think about, well, God, love, God is love because he saved us from sin, but don't you understand that God's love is the reason he made you? God's love doesn't just show up when he came to save us, God's love shows up when he made us. Think about that. Yeah, we see God's love through the cross, but think about God's love in the sense that he made us to begin with. So we know that God created us and committed, is committed to us, but not just us, he's committed to the universe. So he's so committed that he entered into this universe himself, which is where a lot of people say, I just can't buy into that. I just can't understand why would God do that. Now, I'm not telling you if you don't, uh, and I'm telling you if you don't consider this, you'll never understand the incarnation the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and you fail to understand how this is really the apex of all of history, the, the incarnation of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what prompted all of this? Why do it the way that he did it? Again, you don't have to go this deep. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to even go this far, but I think you should, or you should try. We know that God made our realm, he chose to enter into it, and decided to essentially aim the destiny of all creation towards the end game where he's going to unite the spiritual and the physical. Isn't that pretty incredible? Isn't that remarkable? That God was fully God before Genesis 1, but ever since then he's been building towards relocating heaven to earth. Isn't that kind of a big deal? 
that God was God before Genesis 1, yet ever since he said let there be, and ever since he made this world, the, the goal, the story he's been writing is going to end up with heaven coming to earth? That's a big deal. That God, fully complete without us, yet he made this world, and his goal, you can read Revelation 21. What does John see? He sees heaven coming to earth. He sees earth restored to the way it was originally meant to be, and he sees God in the fullness of his glory dwelling on this planet. Not somewhere way up in the sky, not somewhere way out in space, but he sees heaven on earth. So why did God do this? We don't quite know, and there's no verse that says this is why God did this, but we can piece some things together from general understanding of creation to specifics. The Bible tells us when God created the world, the Bible tells us Isaiah 6 says this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God created this world to be able to share in and be able to be blessed by his glorious presence, his amazing essence and nature. Psalm 19 says the, whole, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. So God created this world so that it could witness his glory. Isaiah 43 says, everything, everyone whom I have made. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So why did God create any of us? Why did God create any of this? For his glory. God created the world and everything in it and everyone in it for his glory so that he would be glorified. Isaiah 40 verse 5 says this, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So God created the world and us for his glory. So think about it this way. God is so glorious at the same time being so loving that he created us that we might witness his glory, appreciate it, and bask in it. God's glory was too bright and too brilliant to be kept to himself. Now, let me stop there. Have you ever just found something or got your hand on something, made it to a point in life where you decided, you know what, I don't need anybody else? I don't have to work for them. I don't have to do it for them. I don't have to think about them. I'm just going to live out my days for me. Isn't that the American dream? I'm going to work hard. I'm going to shut everybody else out. If I, if I talk to them, it's because I want to, not because I have to. The American dream is I work until a point in my life when I can quit, retire and live for me. Aren't you glad God didn't operate by that dream? God is too bright and too brilliant to be kept to himself. So he created a world to amplify his glory and bless us with it. Now, I don't, we don't know why God waited as long. We don't know how long God waited. God's always existed, so our minds would break thinking about this. But God always existed, but he always had a plan. I'm not going to keep my brilliance and my glory to myself. I'm going to make creatures in my image. I'm going to give them a planet and a universe. I'm going to reveal my glory to them. I'm going to bless them through my glory. I'm going to do all this. I'm going to give them so much so they might truly understand what it means to be 
witnessing the glory of God. Now listen, you might think, well, isn't that kind of narcissistic that God made things for his glory? Well, what's the other option? That he just sits up in heaven and says, hey, I don't have to do anything for anybody because I'm me and I'm great and nobody else is like me. So, hey, it's just all about me. Angels, can you give me some grapes and serve me with all the pleasures that I can imagine? I mean, that's one reality. If God is God and doesn't need anybody, he could just cross his arms and think, well, you know what? I'm not going to do anything. And that's what most of us would do. That's what most of us want to do with our lives. So the alternative is that God doesn't do any of this. But the reality is that God is so loving and God is so glorious that he made a world for us to enjoy him. But let's break this down a little bit more. The world that he made, God created a physical realm totally opposite from his spiritual realm because it had built-in limitations. And here's what I mean by that. Not limits as in sinful limitations, but when God made this world, guess what? He made day and night. He made food that people needed to eat. God made a world that wasn't as complete as his spiritual realm. He made a world that it didn't always stay daylight. People, all, people had to eat to, to be sustained. He made a world with limitations. Why did he do that? Go even farther. He made a world that wasn't, that, that wasn't just limited, but a world that eventually would fall. And he knew that would happen. Here's, what, here's why I did it. To contrast his spiritual, his glorious, his perfect state, and to maximize his own glory. He made a world that was limited, he made a world that was a little bit lower than his so that it might be contrasted and ultimately maximize his glory. And let me go farther than that. God created a world he knew it would rebel and fall against, away from him. He knew it would become even more limited because not only would the sun set and not only would stomachs get hungry, he knew the world would fall and become fragile and the world would be swallowed up by death. When God said, let there be, he knew that it was going to rebel against him. He knew that we were going to fall. He knew what was going to happen. So God created a world that was limited from the start, became fallen so that he might have a universe to step into. Think about this. God created a world, fragile and fallen, planning to step into it so that he could reclaim it and restore it with a resurrection. Do you understand that this was always God's plan? Maybe you've never thought about it before, and you don't have to, but I think you should. From the very beginning, God's plan was to create a world that was less than, a world that would become even more less than, fragile and fallen, so that he could step into it, so that he could be hung on a cross, so that through his death, the world might be reclaimed and restored through a resurrection. All of this served that he might would be, receive the utmost glory, that we might share in his amazing grace, and that we might declare his goodness and his greatness. 
There's no other storyline that could be full of so much contrast and extremes from one end to another. Yet that's the story that God wrote because it's the story that filled the universe with the most glory. God created a world that he didn't need to bring about a creation that needed him more than anything else. Listen, if I lost you in the last five minutes, come back to earth with this one. God created a world that he didn't need to bring about a creation that needed him more than anything else. That's the purpose of the story the Bible tells. Don't you see the beauty of that? Don't you see what more, what could bring more glory to God than a finite world becoming fragile and fallen in which the creator himself would step into and suffer only to overcome it with a glorious resurrection and transform it into an eternal dwelling place of God and his spiritual kingdom. I know it's still beyond our ability to understand this, but in that short and succinct description, we get a glimpse, we get a taste at what God has been up to. It's truly too amazing for us. It's too rich. It's too awesome. Yet that's what brings God all the more glory because we with our little mind get to enter into God's story uninformed, incapable of fully comprehending it. Yet we still get to go in. The lowest point of human history became the highest point of God's glory and becomes the entry point of us into his story. The lowest point, Jesus dying on a cross. God enters fallen creation, suffers at the hand of fallen creatures, becomes like us in our sin, dies in our place, and is buried in our grave. And yet he came back to life. So what we blew up, he came into this creation so that he might raise up this creation to something brand new. It was always part of his plan. The ultimate purpose of creating and guiding and sustaining this world, this history, is the praise of the glory of the grace of God and the death of his son and the resurrection of his son. You know why this is so fundamental that you, we, can't, we, we, we shouldn't just move past it so quickly? What is the song that they sing in heaven every single day? Worthy is the Lamb. Who was slain? What is more baffling than God Almighty, who doesn't need anybody, creating a world that needed him, that rebelled against him, and God enters into that story and dies on a cross, and then he raises back to life, and he chooses that planet to focus his entire plan on He chooses that planet to relocate his kingdom to one day. So don't you see why we can't phone this life in? Don't you see why it all matters to God? Don't you see that we are a part of his redeeming work and that your earthly, fleshly, materialistic life matters to God and the story we're telling right now points to the story he's gonna tell forever? Don't you see that we can't just sit back in this life and think, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm just waiting to go to heaven when I die. That right now you are a part of a story and your life, as fragile as you are, as fallen as you are, and as certain as you will die one day, that's all part of the story because in your fallenness and in your death you are pointing to the resurrection promise that God has made 
Don't you see how that turns everything on its head? How we don't live this life, oh, well, I'm just getting older, I'm just getting weaker, it's just getting worse, I'm just waiting to get out of here. Don't you see that your story actually is pointing to something much more glorious and that it's not, oh, I'm trapped by something. No, it's you are a part of something. Don't you see how this offers you an entrance into a story that is so much better than we've ever imagined? The resurrection matters because you get to properly glorify God and appreciate Him with your life. Fundamentally, it changes how we live. It changes how we see the world. Our lives are not immaterial and insignificant, but they're building towards what God has got in the future. I think this will make us better stewards because it helps us take an active role in building towards eternity. The basis for Paul's argument is that if Christ is not risen, then our faith is useless. If Christ has not raised from the dead, and if we ourselves are not looking forward to our own resurrection, that means we're going to live our lives out. We're going to die. Do you see what he's saying? That you've got to understand that your life matters and that you're going through this life struggling as you might, facing uncertainty as you might, that you're looking forward to a destiny in the story that you're a part of. It's pointing to the story that God has been planning since the beginning. Look at verses 20 through 22 and, and listen to how Paul sums all this up. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who die. For since by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you see, see what he's saying there? The resurrection was foreshadowed from the very beginning that the first man messed it all up and he died. And Christ came, bore his sin, and when he rose back to life, he raised all of us up with him. You see, Adam destined you to a life of strife and toil and struggle and sin and frustration. But Jesus has reclaimed and redeemed you to a life of purpose and possibility. We have Adam's sin, but when we have Christ's sacrifice, we have Adam's death, we have Christ's resurrection. You can study the book of Romans. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, does a great job at explaining this, that Christ undid what Adam caused. Christ reversed the curse. Uh, and it's not just the cross that matters, it's the resurrection of Jesus that puts an exclamation point on it. Again, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our faith is vain. We are still in our sin. Because if he just died and our sins are paid for, but he's still in the grave, and if, and if this life doesn't matter, and hey, we're all just going to live our lives out, and we're just going to toil and strife and struggle, and we're going to be buried one day, and all oh, it's just so bad, it didn't matter for anything. If Christ didn't raise up, it means that there isn't a way to be redeemed. It means that there isn't a way to live brand new. But because Christ rose again, you and I today can live our lives with a perspective and can look forward to eternal life with God. The new transformative life we've been given is an entry point. It's, it's an entry point into the new creation and Christ's literal resurrection points to our own resurrection one day. Think about this. I know nobody wants, nobody wants to, 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 to dwell on this, but one day all of us are going to lay, lay down be laid down, lay down, maybe we'll be struck unexpectedly and, and, and we'll breathe our last breath. But that's not the end of your story. That's just the beginning 
of the story that God has been writing since, since literally the beginning. But everything that you did from, from birth to, to end, it all mattered because it all was pointing to the day when you yourself would lay down your life so that you might be raised up to brand new, earthly life, because we're gonna be living on this earth forever and ever. Heaven's gonna come to earth and we're gonna live in our bodies. Not just, we're not gonna be ghosts in the clouds floating around. We're gonna be living, breathing people, living life as God always intended it. Listen to how Paul kind of sums all this up, verse 23. But each one in his own order. And he's going to explain this was always part of God's plan. Christ is the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ is the, is the predecessor of all of us. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to the rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is, expect, is accepted, as in God is above all this, has planned all this. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in and all. Now that's Paul being very wordy, but here's what he means by this. God planned all of this from the beginning. If you think your earthly life doesn't matter to God, it so matters. Every earthly life matters because we are a testament to God's glory. Because in our weakness and in our frailty, God makes his glory known. Because though we struggle, though we fall, he is raising us up. And that ultimately points to the glorious work of God and the glorious salvation of God. So we are not in a holding place. We are in a state of preparation and a state of anticipation of what God is going to do. And you know what? We've seen the whole story. We've seen the full picture. Our flesh may be growing weary, but one day it'll be raised up just like Christ was. And one day this earth will be destroyed just like Christ's body was. And not destroyed, but restored just like Christ's body was. And he shall reign here on this earth and we will be with him. Zechariah 14 verse nine says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one in his name. One, do you, do you, do you know that's, that's the goal? That's the, that's the destiny? So we're not waiting to be released from this world. We're waiting to be able to enjoy this world as it was always meant to be. Until then, until then, your day-to-day -day life matters. Your life in this flesh, in this physical world, it matters to God because it points to the story he's been telling since the beginning. Church, thank you all for being here tonight. I pray that we all would open our minds up to what God is doing don't ever be afraid to sit back and say, God, why did you do all this? Because getting a glimpse of it all and understanding what God has been up to will help you better appreciate it and better make use of it and be good stewards of this awesome gift that is life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your story, Lord. And Lord, our little minds, our little brains, we, we can't fully comprehend it all. But just to know that none of this was an accident, none of this was make it up as you go, none of this was 
Well, I guess that'll work. All this was part of your plan. We're part of your plan. Our lives are part of your plans. And we're not just here waiting for it all to end. We're here anticipating what comes next, even our passing, because our death just sets the stage for a resurrection. And the resurrection is what we've all been waiting for. And that is where we get to enter into the story that will never end. Lord, thank you for coming into this world that you didn't need so that we might realize that you are our greatest need. There is no one like you. And let us make sure that we make the most of this life that you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.